When Houston, I'm John Herter. Tuesday, 11th day of October. Great as always to have you along, everybody. In a nutshell, From the Experts is a virtual networking accelerator, helping leaders across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format. Yeah, it's like a TED Talk with interaction. So what's in it for you? The FTE promise if all goes well, your curiosity sparked new ideas, accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or somebody else solve a problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. Today, you are on the Energy Transition Channel, created in partnership with the Endeavor Institute. You know, making authentic connections and networks with stakeholders in the energy transition community has never been more important to your business and essential to reach a low carbon, sustainable energy future together. Folks, help me welcome guest expert, Dr. Lynn Frostman. Lynn is Vice President of Sustainability and Corporate Social Responsibility at Syzygy Plasmonics, where she is developing, implementing company strategy on safety, sustainability, diversity, equity, inclusion, employee development, community engagement, and corporate governments. Whew, lots of hats. Dr. Frostman has more than 23 years in the oil field services industry, holds a bachelor's and PhD in chemical engineering. Lynn, gosh, enjoyed our time getting a tiny glimpse into your work that really facilitates and leverages clean hydrogen, which plays a huge role in boosting decarbonization for a wide range of industries. Grateful to have you on today and looking forward to where you take and where the group takes the conversation today. Thank you, John. I really appreciate the uh, invitation to join you all and all of you for taking time out of your busy days uh, to join the conversation today. Uh, so to start off, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about climate change. Uh, and I think you all know that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, there's estimates out there that roughly 50% of the technologies that we are 50% of the emissions reductions that are necessary to reach uh, net zero by the middle of the century are gonna come from technologies that have, are still in development right now. Uh, and many of those technologies fall into that category of tough tech, meaning that they require a lot of capital and, and years, sometimes decades to develop and scale uh, and get, get to be tried and true. So time is of the essence. Uh, and while the technical and financial challenges are hard, I am very inspired by the ever-growing community of teams that are dedicated to meeting these challenges. But it's my observation that one of the things that seems to be holding us back right now is neither technical nor financial. Rather, it's how we talk to each other about these complex projects and how we go about evaluating them and, and the, the time that it takes to actually make that happen. So in particular, um, we, you know, we seem to be living in an age where a lot of people want to oversimplify things. They're going for that soundbite um, and they lose the nuances, those critical details that we need to really understand what's going on. And on the other side of those who dive into the excruciating details that only the true experts can really appreciate. Um, and you know, sometimes that's really necessary, but many times they lose the audience before they have a chance to grasp the most important takeaways. So if you overlay that with the backdrop of divisiveness and mistrust, and you've got a recipe for slowing the progress towards the energy transition. So today I'd like to make a case for getting the right balance or what I like to call just enough rigor uh, into the initial evaluation of deep decarbonization technologies and improving the way that we communicate about these. 
complex projects. Um, along the way, I'll touch on the importance of transparency in helping us build trust. And I'll give you an example of one tool that we've built to help. Um, so just briefly some context, uh, Syzygy Plasmonics, it's a very hard name to say, uh, but it is a small startup that is commercializing new technology to run chemical reactions with electricity instead of with uh, burning of fossil fuels. Uh, and that enables us to potentially reduce the scope one emissions from chemical industry to the order of a, a gigaton of CO2 emissions per year. Uh, we are starting with reactions to make hydrogen, not only because a lot of people are very interested in hydrogen as a energy transition uh, fuel, but also because the current standard for making hydrogen, uh, which is known as steam methane reforming, generates significant amounts of CO2 emissions. Now, many of you have heard that there are significant new tax credits out there that are encouraging hydrogen producers to consider clean and renewable-based production pathways. And if you spent any time uh, learning about hydrogen, you've probably heard a lot about colors. Um, so John, if you could go ahead and throw up that first poll, I'd love to see uh, sort of where you all are. You know, you'll hear people talk about green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, uh, gray, pink, turquoise, uh, <laughs> all sorts of crazy colors. Uh, many use this as, as a shorthand way. So I'm curious as to what do you think green hydrogen is, or uh, what are you? What is your understanding of it? It's working. All right. It must be complicated if you've got to have A, C, and D, and D, <laughs> C, and D. And I'm like, my goodness, you got to have a PhD to do the poll. Yeah, it, it might not surprise you that, uh, you know, in putting together that poll, those are all definitions that I found uh, out there. <laughs> so I'm not sure there's actually a right answer to this one, but. Well, I've got, uh, looks like I've got 80%, so I'm going to go ahead and publish and see what people are saying. Here's the Here are the results. Yep, all over the map. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said, um, I, I did find pretty much every single one of those somewhere uh, out there in the, in the internet. Um, and so there's, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, it changes, differences in understanding as well as meanings when people are speaking about it. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the challenges that I see with, with uh, in that case, oversimplifying things. Um, the color really doesn't consistently reflect the actual emissions. Uh, most people mean some combination of using electrolysis to make the hydrogen, uh, doing that so in a way that uh, utilizes renewable energy or some other form of, of low carbon energy that, that uh, helps reduce the overall emissions from it. Um, but you know, many folks don't know that there are significant differences in how you produce green hydrogen and how that impacts the carbon intensity of it. Uh, so both solar and wind are, are great ways to make hydrogen using electrolysis, uh, but they're not the same. And using one or the other has a pretty big impact on the overall life cycle emissions. Um, perhaps more frustrating to me are the claims about anticipated green hydrogen projects that cite the ability to use surplus uh, renewable electricity, but then neglect to talk about what are some of the challenges that come when that uh, that electricity supply is intermittent, right? So what happens to the cost or the uptime uh, when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining? Um, 
cherry picking data may be expedient in many cases, but uh, it, it really doesn't help us as a society. So assessing the feasibility and tra of transitioning to clean hydrogen can be difficult because there are so many different variables involved, uh, including the cost and source of the electricity that you're using, the feedstocks, uh, as well as the utilization factors and the capital requirements. Now, uh, there are some, uh, some fabulously comprehensive tools out there uh, that to examine specific processes, uh, but they're a bit complex and sometimes require a significant level of knowledge in order to operate them and get the, the right answer out of them. So finding that balance between oversimplification and more complex modeling is critical, uh, particularly when we need to quickly seek buy-in from multiple stakeholders and to drive that alignment. So we saw a need for an easy way to quickly assess new decarbonization uh, projects, uh, and we wanted to be able to quickly assess the viability and compare different technologies. Um, so we did what a lot of people do. We built our own spreadsheet uh, to figure out what were the right calculations and to get a reasonable estimate of both the carbon intensity and the project cost so we could compare the technologies. Uh, after many rounds of refinement, uh, we decided others might find it pretty useful as well. So we have put together a website. It's called carbonmodel.com, and we'll send you all a link to it after the show here. Uh, but it's a free tool designed to give you a quick way to calculate impact. Um, so I'm going to show it to you just briefly here, um, not intending for this to be a full demo, but rather just a, a chance for you to take a peek at it. Um, so here is uh, what the main calculator page looks like. Uh, you can see that we've included several different types of ways of producing hydrogen. And if you hover over it, it'll tell you a little bit about what, uh, what that process is. Uh, on the right-hand side is a whole series of inputs that you can change, including things like the electricity price, the electricity source, what you're paying for natural gas, where you're getting that natural gas, and so forth. Um, and then it calculates both the levelized cost of hydrogen for each of the different technologies, as well as the carbon footprint. Uh, down at the bottom, you can take a peek at different ways of, of slicing and dicing the data to understand what the different inputs are. Uh, and we have included uh, some scenario analyses that allows you to run some simple ideas. So in this case, I just varied uh, the, the type of electricity that is used and you can take a look at uh, the different, um, sorry, let me get that the right one here. Um, you can see that the carbon intensity changes uh, between the different projects and the, the relative uh, differences between the technologies changes as you change the source of electricity. Uh, and then we have a, um, uh, another sensitivity analysis and a minimum cost heat map. And this, for instance, if we're looking at producing hydrogen with these certain assumptions, you can tell, depending on the price of the gas and the price of the electricity, which one is going to come out to be your top technology in terms of, of cost. Um, you know, as with any of these models, there's a lot of devil in the details. So we've included a reference page that has not only a, a user guide, uh, some more information about the different processes, uh, but also a technical reference that shares uh, all there is to know about how we actually did these calculations. So um, with that, I'm going to pause sharing there uh, and just say, that uh, again, this is just one example of something that we thought was useful way to get that right balance. Um, I do want to emphasize the importance, I think, of transparency. You know, as we're thinking about how we move this energy transition forward, 
it's really important to be able to build that trust quickly and effectively. Um, as Brene Brown likes to say, it's more important to get it right than to be right. And I think that really needs to be our mantra for this energy transition. Uh, and so we wanted to be very clear about how we're doing the calculations and what references we're using for our assumptions. And if you don't like the, the assumptions that we made, you can go in and adjust them yourselves. Um, I am really pleased to see that they, we're seeing more and more transparency uh, in this energy transition from some of the thought leaders. Uh, and I'm gonna ask uh, Lume if she wouldn't mind uh, dropping in the chat uh, two of my favorite references uh, one is a book called Speed and Scale uh, by John Doerr, uh, and the other is called The Carbon Almanac, uh, which is edited by Seth Godin. Uh, both of these are taking a really hard and detailed look at the energy transition, and they give you both that high-level um, snapshot in a way that I think is really useful, but then they also give you all the references to dig into the details of how they're um, how they're looking at things and uh, what assumptions they're making. And, in, and their websites are even uh, set up to automatically update when things change uh, so that you've always got a, a continuous reference there. So that, that's kind of the model that you know, we were trying to live up to in, in terms of transparency. Um, and so my, one of my asks to you today is to help us ensure that we are getting it right. Uh, so again, we'll provide you with a link to the site uh, it is free to use. Please go in, play around with it, uh, see what you think. Um, in my mind, feedback is a gift. Uh, so we'd be grateful for any insights that you have, uh, particularly, you know, did we hit that right balance, right? Uh, is there uh, just enough rigor there for you to do an initial evaluation of a project? Uh, what else would you like to see in there? Um, is it simple enough to use? Is it helpful? And do we need further details in some spots? And uh, last but not least, are there other references or, or other technologies that you think we should uh, be incorporating? Um, so I'll close by reiterating that we have the opportunity to accelerate the energy transition uh, by ensuring that we quickly and effectively assess new technologies so we can understand and communicate realistic estimates of life cycle carbon intensity and project economics. Uh, to make that impact, we need to be able to efficiently drive alignment and build trust across a range of stakeholders. Um, I believe transparency is a key part of that, and I've shown you one tool that I hope you found helpful. Uh, but I look forward to hearing more from the audience today. Uh, and I see John's pulled up our, uh, our second poll, and that is, you know, who do you go to or where do you go to get insights when you're evaluating new projects? Would love to hear more about that. Uh, and while that's coming in, I also did want to acknowledge my, my colleague, um, Mertuza, who's on the call as well today. He had a lot to do with getting this uh, calculator put together and, and doing all the deep digging to find the, the resources needed to make it uh, effective. Nice. So thanks, Lynn. And, and uh, we'll, we're at uh, about 57% on the poll. We'll let that roll just a little bit. Folks, just so you know, the FTE show, we hear from the expert and then we roll into group conversation. So now we're going to do that group conversation. If you've got questions, you can keep dropping them in the, the chat box, but also speak up. You can talk to your colleagues that are here. Uh, we have specific group questions that kind of help the feedback, but you don't have to stay oriented just to that. Um, I did have one question while we're, here's the general group question. What other techniques? So we've got a lot of project people, we've got a lot of energy people, but we have finance people, we have, uh, we've got money people. 
what kind of techniques or what other techniques are best practices do you use to rapidly assess project potential? And that kind of links to this. So that's the question uh, that uh, we have for you. I'm gonna drop it in the thing there just to see, so that you can see it. And I'm welcome, uh, if somebody would like to raise their hand, glad to, glad to, uh, or just speak up, glad to have you in your comments. John, you have two questions already in the chat. Right, so uh, while you guys are coming up with uh, raising your hand or asking a question directly, a question came up was, what other techniques or best practices no, I'm sorry, that's the one I put in. Which one are you referring to? Oh, here it is. Uh, one for Brian. You have the one for Brian. There. Yeah, could you read that for us? I'm missing it. Uh, I think he's asking the big question of energy transition and how do we get people to understand that this is a solution that can that, that can happen. This is not a solution that can happen overnight. A huge amount of wasted effort and money being thrown to present a solution and solve the crisis. Oh, I see Brian Scales, right. Awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I think that is a, a excellent question and um, something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I find myself talking to people a lot, uh, quite a lot. I mean, even the best estimates of the most aggressive plans show us as, um, you know, needing until that 2050 time range to really uh, to hit those numbers. Um, the, the books that I referenced there give a really nice overview, particularly the one on speed and scale. They've gone through and uh, made some estimates about what it's going to take us and, and how to make the math work, right? How to, how to get all of the different pieces to add up to the level of emissions reduction that we need to get to. Um, but I agree. I think it's it's important that people understand that the you know, for instance, the idea of just turning the taps off um, and and not producing any more petroleum is is not going to be an effective strategy to get us there. Um, but also that uh, it is going to take a lot of different technologies. Uh, from my perspective, there is no one size fits all magic bullet here. Uh, we're going to need uh, probably thousands of different technologies on the table to help make sure that we can solve these challenges. Well, and, uh, one of the uh, questions came back from Joffrey Camacho. He says, well, dollars per ton ratio is a good indicator. That was his take. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the, um, you know, one of the key things there is that right now uh, we, we are seeing what many people call a green premium, right? That, so initially here, these technologies, when they're brand new, you don't have the economies of scale. So one of the things that uh, you know several groups are doing is looking at how do you make sure that those initial investments get made, even when the technologies are not yet um, as commercially viable as you hope they will be long term, but that you can also see what does that trajectory look like uh, and making sure that you can get to a more cost competitive number. Right. Uh, Kevin, I see you. Kevin, uh, introduce yourself briefly and your question, please. Hi, um, I'm Kevin Mullen, um, CEO of GreenQuest Power. It's a uh, clean energy development company. We're focusing on geothermal mm. and uh, we're focusing on removing the bottleneck for closed loop systems for geothermal, which are you know, more stable, more efficient to run. The bottleneck is being able to drill deeper, cheaper. That's 
that's the bottleneck. So that's what we're focusing on delivering. And uh, since I got into this uh, energy business only four years in, so I'm a, a relative newbie, but I am a uh, business modeling finance guy. And uh, what I wanted to do was to reconstruct the norms that are being used in the energy uh, ecosystem because um, <clears throat> it was very clear that that the ecosystem everyone plays on equal playing field was not an equal playing field. So, uh, and part of that reason is that renewable energy is typically uh, a much higher asset cost in the total cost. The asset cost itself is a much higher uh, ratio and the operating and maintenance costs are much lower. Uh, obviously your supply cost is a lot lower as well, right? So we're sure. not even a factor. So my question is, is how much is the um, optimizing of the financial modeling a part of evaluating the feasibility of a technology? Um, and, and is there any plan of working that into the modeling? Because <clears throat> out of everything you could possibly consider, um, I think if you guarantee revenues, there's only so much risk because they, if they don't produce, they don't get paid, right? So I think that for me, the, the, uh, the question that I, I, was, I was wondering is like, is there a view or some kind of effort in, in bringing together optimal financial models so that renewable energy can compete? Great. Lynn, do you, uh, either you or uh, Martusa have a response to that or comments? I can't hear you. Hey, yeah, Martusa. <laughs> I can see your lips moving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, hey, yeah. Well, you know? yeah, there we go. go. Yeah. Okay, Sorry. Yeah. So I can, I can take this one. Um, thank you for the question, Kevin. I think, uh, you know, you have to approach it from terms of you know what the business model is and what the reality is in that environment, right? So energy transition is not only a transition of you know the way that we source our energy and, and how sort of value chains have been structured, but also how the new value chains will sort of emerge. And what you're seeing is is uh, you know a lot of incumbents and in, you know in around hydrogen production and other sort of energy transition, uh, along with sort of newcomers that are evaluating different business models for how to do things, right? So whereas you know. Uh, the, the value chain could have been pretty bifurcated, you know, previously where you have, you know, say, for example, oil and gas, your upstream producers who then have sort of you know, uh, support from oil field service providers, midstream companies that can then transport it to refineries downstream, who are then also separated from sort of the final distribution. Now you're saying, you know, people who want to sort of play on the entire value chain where they say, okay, I own the, the, the production and the generating asset that's now going to be sort of serving merchant markets. I then have to sort of, you know, uh, worry about the logistics or have a sort of distributed model. Um, and ultimately, I'm going to be selling to the customer as well. So a lot of the energy, the energy majors, incumbents, I mean, I think uh, if you think about, you know, eight of the top 10 companies uh, in the world that are, they all have sort of, you know, very focused energy transition plans. They want to play across an entire value chain. So understanding how that is going to be, the new reality is going to be important. Uh, as far as, you know, uh, when you're thinking about assessing projects, understanding, you know, how these projects are going to be come online and stood up uh, and ultimately how the value is going to be delivered to, to consumers. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and um, I'll, I'll just add that I, I think geothermal is a fabulously 
potential, <laughs> fabulous potential as a technology. Really love the idea of being able to baseload uh, and provide a consistent, uh, reliable energy source uh, over time. So I know a lot of companies are looking at that um, and looking forward to a time when, you know, we're not just saying wind and solar, we're saying wind, solar, geothermal, uh, maybe a few other ones we haven't thought about yet. So Mariana Maya says, uh, decarbonization is their core business, not only uh, by producing a, a hydrogen through electrolysis, but also by CO2 is one of the main mm -hmm. sources, right? How do you see CCU standing out as out to CCS as a part of the decarbonization process? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, capturing the carbon and making something useful out of it uh, is, is sort of the ultimate win-win. Um, and we are, uh, we are actively looking at that ourselves. We're looking at how do we take uh, CO2 to valuable synthetic fuels uh, in the future. Um, so absolutely think that that's a, a fabulous pathway. And, um, you know, again, the, the general, uh, ex general expert consensus is that we're going to have to figure out some way to remove existing uh, emissions from the atmosphere in addition to making sure that uh, we don't put any more in in the future. So uh, plenty, plenty of uh, technologies we need to play with there. So among the variety of CO2 capture technology, which one seems most promising to be used combined with the conversion, hydrogen? Um, so I'm most excited about the ones where, um, you know, you can take it directly off of an existing, um, uh, an existing technology. So for instance, when you are uh, making hydrogen from methane, the natural byproduct of that is CO2. And if you can take that CO2 and then you turn that directly into something without um, diluting it first, uh, it's much easier to capture and much easier to use. Uh, I do like the idea of uh, synthetic fuels, but I, I'll be honest, I'm a little biased and that's kind of where I've been focusing my attention lately. I'd, be, I'd love to hear from the rest of the organization the rest of the group here, what other technologies they're excited about in that space. Got it. So Janet, Jana has her hand raised. Jana. Hi. Hi, everybody. And thank you for this forum. It's my first time. Uh, and thank you, Lynn, because you told me about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have less, I don't really have a technical question, but more of um, an observation based on conversations I've been having with people uh, recently. And that's around the perception of this uh, energy transition that's going on. And like everything else, it seems it's become very politicized and people are kind of picking their, their corners. Um, and then you mentioned the importance of communication and transparency. And it made me think about a conversation I had last week with um, a former colleague who is starting a, uh, a business, uh, a new business. He's a serial entrepreneur, but this one um, involves a product called Net Zero matrix and his his intention is that people be able to companies be able to um, not only say what their goals are with respect to decarbonization but also the results and then there be some governance structure in place to actually validate those results mm -hmm. um, because of all of the greenwashing that is going on people just don't know what to think they don't know what to who to believe um, if you say the, the, the acronym ESG, you generate lots and lots of reactions. Um, and 
you know, it just made me wonder, what do you think um, are different ways that we can go about increasing the transparency and putting information out there in a way that people feel they can truly trust, uh, particularly in this very politicized world that we are all living in? Yeah, I, I think that is a, a, a real challenge. And as I'm, you know, um, I'll, I'll go back to the this idea of, of essentially citing your references, right? Where where are you getting these numbers from? How are you doing the calculations? Um, not everybody's going to want to go and, and double check your math, uh, but at least it's there uh, for you uh, to do so if you choose. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's some... <laughs> There, there's some sketchy stuff out there, right? And and it does, oftentimes it doesn't take too much digging into it to figure out that um, they're glossing over some challenges. Well, let me go ahead and before we yeah. close out the poll, you can see the results there. The question was, you know, where do you go to get insights evaluating new clean tech projects? Looks like about 60% are used in-house, 50% use third party, 25% um, use in-house models. And then you've got suppliers in the clean tech industry. So it's kind of all over the map. Does that surprise you at all? No, no. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, uh, again, we're all, um, we're all finding our way right now. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 I would love to see, um, you know, I think there's a couple of questions running through the chat too about standardization. You know, as we start to figure this out, uh, the, the quicker we can come to some agreement over, you know, what are some of the best ways to do it so that we're not comparing apples uh, to oranges when different people report information, um, I think is, is important. Uh, this is one of those areas, um, I'll, I'll liken it to uh, safety, right? Um, a lot of companies are very happy to share what they do from a safety perspective because they think it makes everybody safer. Um, and and the, that's not, a, that's not a, an area that they compete on. Um, I, I think you know, this, this idea of how do we, how do we reduce emissions, how do we then calculate and accurately reflect it uh, is another place where uh, more cooperation, more collaboration, um, more transparency in how we do things uh, is gonna benefit the whole. Okay, so we have another question uh, from Christine Ekamani, Economides, sorry, got to get that out. <laughs> transportation, for transportation, would hydrogen be better used in synthetic fuel or directly as a transportation fuel itself? Mm. Mm -hmm. That's, that is a great question. Um, I, I think there's, there's a lot of different, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of different opinions out there right now. Um, from what I've seen the and, and what we're hearing, we're getting a lot more pull for uh, the synthetic fuels right now, um, particularly for the uh, uh, synthetic jet fuel and so forth. But, um, you know, uh, uh, do I see it coming to personal cars? Probably not. Uh, that, that seems to have been uh, won by the, by the battery uh, side of things. Uh, but um, the, the hydrogen fuel cells, um, I think, are, are fabulous technology, very excited about where those potentially could go. It just, it, it's, it's not clear to me which, whether the fuel cell versus the um, um, using a synthetic fuel is gonna win in that case. I do like the fuel cells in that you, do, you essentially, you don't have any 
distributed emissions, right? It, at the point of use, you've got zero emissions from uh, from the system aside from water, uh, which is which I think is a great thing. Um, there's a question about types of projects most interesting or valuable to Syzygy and why? Um, so we are getting the strongest pull from people who want to make very large quantities of hydrogen. Uh, we're talking tens of tons a day. Um, that is coming from a, a very globally distributed set of uh, potential customers. Um, our first field trials right now are going to be over in uh, um, we have one coming up in Asia that will uh, be looking at the ammonia, using ammonia as a hydrogen transporter, and then us translating that ammonia back into hydrogen locally uh, in South Korea. Uh, but we're also getting pull from other parts of the world as well. So we've got, um, we've got a really diverse group of people. So I'm going to call you all out. We've got <laughs> money people. We've got modeling people, lots of project people from different uh, slices of the industry. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, here's a question about uh, how does this tool relate to or figure into the more complex tools like the GREET model, G-R-E-E-T. Mm -hmm. So I'll... Yeah, yeah, thanks, Lynn. I can I can handle this as, okay. as I was sort of you know uh, did all the the background research and all that stuff. And how we see this is is sort of the first step in you know any interested party's journey in understanding sort of carbon accounting and life cycle emissions and you know all the incentives that then go along with it. Um, you know, obviously the Greek model has you know over twenty five years of development behind it. It's the standard that you know the government references in, in documents like the IRA. Uh, the issue is you have to sort of have a PhD level understanding of it to be able to navigate it properly. So as you sit back and think, you know, I'm a new entrant into the hydrogen market, or I want to sort of see if there's a compelling uh, project opportunity or or something that I should dig into. It's hard to go from you know no knowledge or limited knowledge directly to the Greek model. So we want to provide sort of that first step for someone to say, okay, this is now interesting for me enough to devote time, resources, personnel, uh, et cetera, into uh, you know understanding more. Uh, we want to sort of provide that advanced um, um, overview to help you know people start to build a framework to understand how you know different projects or different lever levers as part of their project will affect their carbon intensity, their economics and, and the like uh, that they can then you know use as a springboard to say okay now that I have a good baseline framework I'm going to you know dive in and maybe you know either contract uh, you know with some uh, um, uh, you know petitioning bodies or, or, or you know uh, companies that sort of help people with that analysis or so you know devote internal resources to understanding uh, this you know specific project a little bit more uh, and how that'll sort of ultimately shake out. So it's just the first step uh, along the journey. It's a, a quick and easy way for you to 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 sort of start to build that framework. Got it. So we we've got an interesting follow up conversation flowing between uh, Santouche, who's with uh, a company out of uh, the Netherlands, I believe, called Twister, who does a lot of this kind of stuff. And then uh, Joffre, they're, they're trying to say H2 for transportation is not viable in personal cars. Uh, but then um, Joffre says, shouldn't we be replacing fossil fuels with H2? And uh, Santu says, yeah, but uh, because of poor efficiency that and multiple conversion efficiency losses, it's slowing it down. Overall, you get less energy out of with the same energy input is what his take is. 
Any other questions from the field? Uh, you know, Jana also points out here that uh, <laughs> kind of goes back to communication mm -hmm. and people. You know, everything works great until you get humans involved. <laughs> you got behavioral challenges, right? So she talks about standardization and how long that takes. And uh, this is relatively, this is a, you know, can you even say a super tanker? It's even bigger than that, trying mm -hmm. to change things. So, yeah. Uh, and then you have, uh, Wendy just dropped something in around EV. Wendy, why don't you just say it? I want to hear somebody else. Hello. Um, so I am actually a fan of hydrogen, um, but I do think we need energy diversification. So relying simply on electric for all of our transportation needs or even just for pass, uh, passenger transport is not going to solve our problems. We're going to run out of lithium. Cobalt's a huge issue. Um, we just lack the basic raw materials. And with hydrogen, I know that California has their hydrogen hub they're establishing. They're going to be putting in num numerous charging stations. And companies like Toyota and River Simple and um, Hyundai are actually making hydrogen cars that actually have a very long range. So I think there is room for everybody. If it's not your thing, get an electric. If you want to give hydrogen a shot, I think you should give hydrogen a shot. Thanks, Wendy. Any comments to that from anybody? So uh... I, I actually would like to comment. Um, you okay. uh, so I, I'm the one working for Carbon Recycling International and our approach is actually turn emissions into methanol uh, using renewable electricity with it. And we have a couple of projects already installed around the world, you know, like China is commissioning at the moment and we have one in Iceland. Uh, so I, I, I do understand that hydrogen is very pretty on principle. I myself left uh, oil job to uh, do a sustainable energy engineering masters in Iceland and uh, my thesis was in green ammonia production and it, it is very pretty on paper when you look at hydrogen and ammonia and how you're going to produce that but it's still not feasible economically but when you look at methanol itself you can run cars you can run ships on it and you can also do that like the way my company sells is actually the way you can decarbonize on CO2 emissions and the hydrogen itself, which is way more feasible than the hydrogen. Um, so it's just a comment in terms of that are other fuels that can be produced decarbonizing the industry, not just on the hydrogen side, but also using emissions itself. Right. Any comment to that, Lynn? Yeah, like I said, I, I, I think there are a lot of... Um, fascinating technologies out there, right? And, and I don't think there's gonna be a one size fits all solution. Uh, so very excited to hear from all of these different uh, folks on the call and the, and the different ways that they're approaching it. Cause I, I think we need all all hands on deck here. Um, We've got more questions than time, but uh, this is another, which is great. Here's another aspect. How are you demonstrating transparency and building trust in order to drive change at speed? I think that's the question for everybody. What's mm -hmm. been working, right? Anybody? And then we have a, um, okay, we have another question down here. Your favorite resources to follow in order to stay current with the latest climate tech studies? Anybody? I can see that uh, mm -hmm. Artuza came in with one. 
But if you've got those, feel free to step up. And then you've got Christine who said, ah, EVs take too long to charge and they don't have access, many don't to chargers and so on. Uh, we have time for maybe one more verbal comment if anybody has one. Um, if not, then I'll just go, Lynn, to you for your last words and then we'll, we'll close the show. So thank you, everybody. I really appreciate uh, the engagement and the um, uh, your participation today. Uh, all the, the comments in the chat uh, found it very useful. Again, invite you to um, take a look at the carbonmodel.com and provide us with any feedback that you have. And also would be love to connect with folks uh, if uh, you'd like to continue the conversation on um, again, I'm particularly interested in, in hearing how other people are going about some of these challenges of uh, getting to alignment with a variety of stakeholders very quickly, as well as, you know, learning better ways to communicate and better ways to model, uh, better ways to essentially move this transition at pace uh, when there's so much uncertainty. So again, just thank everybody for, for all of your uh, engagement today. Thanks, Lynn. So folks, how was the talk and discussion today? Please take the 30-second FT survey that's being dropped in the chat right now. Uh, today's post-show notes will, with everybody's contact info and expert resources, will hit your mailbox just a little bit later today. So it's important. Take time to connect with this very interesting and diverse group of people. Stay connected. Next up on the Energy Transition Channel. October 25th, Stephanie Dvorak, VP Sustainability Bristow Group, explores the challenges of collaboration and creating partnerships within your own ecosystem to create sustainability targets. November 8th, Aditya Singh, CEO of Promethean Energy, engages the group on ideas that responsibly repurpose and put to bed end-of-life offshore oil and gas assets with the lowest carbon footprint possible. Learn more and register for these on our website at fte.network. Folks, we're out of time. Hey, thanks once again, Lynn. And to all of you guys for making time to connect and learn on the Energy Transition Channel. Thanks, everybody. Hope to see you next time.